Welcome to Living with COVID-19, brought to you by A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. Today, we're going to be continuing a series called An Encouraging Word for Discouraging Times. This is a series that I preached several years ago out of 1 Peter. It was written for people who were going through difficult and hard times much as what we're experiencing during this time of COVID-19. So I hope these messages will be an encouragement to you. Open your Bible. Let's listen to God's Word together. That you are our hope, and that we can wait on you. And as we wait on you and hope in you, that you give us strength to mount up as eagles. We might run and not become weary faint because our hope is in you our Lord and our God this day we place our complete trust and hope in you we look to you to give us strength to go through the adversity that we're facing we look to you to give us comfort in our time of hardships we look to you to empower us to live each day as your child bringing glory to your name we look to you to empower us to be the husbands and wives you've called us to be to be the mothers and fathers that you would desire for us to be to be the children that you've called us to be we ask you to speak to us in your word this day giving us your insights, ministering the life of the Lord Jesus, that we might leave this place having been transformed by your grace and your power. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're continuing our study of 1 Peter Encouraging words for discouraging times. And today we're looking at finding comfort in your adversity through knowing who you are. There's a sense of security that comes from knowing who our family is and where our roots go. We have been able to trace my family with a good amount of certainty back to... 1950, when Matthew Stewart came over across the Atlantic from Scotland, and he settled in Philadelphia. After being in Philadelphia for a while, he moved to North Carolina, where he founded a Presbyterian church. He was a founding elder. There's a monument there, uh, even today, that celebrates uh, his founding of that church. And then Henry moved, his son moved down to Green County, after serving in the Revolutionary War with his father, Matthew, Henry lived to be 104 years old, and he surveyed the Tolliver County lines. And then Henry had a son named Reuben, and Reuben had seven sons, and I have a picture of his seven sons, and Reuben's son, William Talmadge, uh, is my great-grandfather. 
And the guy in the middle there is William Talmadge, my great-grandfather, along with his six brothers. And William Talmadge had a number of children, one which was Arthur Talmadge Stewart, uh, who was my grandfather. And uh, I understand they had a good marriage. You can't tell it from that picture necessarily, but uh, that's my grandfather and grandmother. Uh, And then, uh, of course, they had my dad. Uh, and my dad had me. Uh, and I show you these pictures because you got pictures similar to this in your house of your grandparents and maybe your great-grandparents. Well, why is that? Because it's important for us to know who we are, where we came from. It gives us a sense of security. It gives us a sense of comfort to know who we are. Imagine what it would be to wake up with, with amnesia in the hospital, not knowing who you are, not knowing who your family is, not knowing anything about yourself. Very unsettling, very insecure. Yet when we know who we are, there is security and comfort in that. Well, the same thing is true for us as Christians. When we know who we are as Christians, there's a measure of security and comfort in that, even when we're going through hard times. Now, sadly, many Christians don't realize who they are in Christ, the rich heritage that we have in the Lord Jesus. So today, Peter teaches us about our spiritual heritage, who we are in Christ. He gives us our spiritual roots, and it is very important that we have a firm understanding of this If we're going to find comfort in our times of hardship by knowing who we are. And let's look over in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 4 through 10 as Peter gives us our spiritual heritage. And I would ask you in respect for the Word of God if you would stand with me while I read beginning in verse 4. And coming to Him, that is Christ, As to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You may be seated, and may God bless the reading and the hearing and most of all, the obeying of his word. Now, as Peter is giving us our spiritual heritage, 
The first thing he wants us to realize, he wants us to know our cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. In verse 4 he says, And coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. And our whole discussion today, we need to remember that Peter is picturing Christians and the church as a building. He's using the metaphor of stones and a building. And he's picturing the church as individual members as stones and Jesus as the cornerstone, as a picture that I have represented here for you. He wants us to know, first of all, that Jesus is the cornerstone to our spiritual building. He is the key. Now, in ancient masonry, the cornerstone was the most important stone or brick in the entire building. Everything was set according to the cornerstone. Every other stone had to align itself with the cornerstone. This set the exact place for the walls. And so the cornerstone was the most important part of the building. It was germane to everything else that was built upon it. Now you and I know that any building is no better than its foundation. And what Peter wants us to know at the very beginning, that we have the absolute best foundation possible in Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone of our spiritual house. He is the cornerstone of the church. Now, Peter gives three Old Testament verses to support this concept and teach us about our foundation, Jesus Christ. First, he says, Jesus is choice and precious to God. Here he's quoting from Isaiah 28 when he says in verse 6, For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Now he's telling us several things. First, he's telling us that God chose Jesus to be the cornerstone of the church. It was God's sovereign choice. Before the foundation of the world, the divine council met and God chose the Son, Jesus, to be the cornerstone of the church. Next, he tells us that Jesus is highly honored by the Father. Not only choice, but a precious cornerstone. And then he tells us that those who believe in him will not be disappointed. They will not be let down. Now, remember, Peter's writing to Christians going through hard times, going through suffering, going through persecution. And so he's letting them know you will not be disappointed. Jesus will not let you down. People will let you down, but Jesus will not. Those who place their faith in Him, the choice cornerstone, the precious cornerstone, will not be disappointed. Now the second thing he tells us about Jesus is found in verse 7. And that is that He was rejected by Israel. And here he's quoting from Psalm 118. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. Now you see the word rejected 
In the Greek, it carries the idea of putting something to the test, and it fails the test. You put it to the test, and it doesn't meet up to your expectations or the needs that you have, and so you reject it. You turn it aside. Now, it was important because the cornerstone was so crucial to the building. It was important that it be, it be inspected, there be no cracks in it, that it be a stone worthy to be placed at the cornerstone. And if it was inspected and seen to be inferior and not the quality needed for the cornerstone, it'd be rejected. Well, this is the picture we have here. It's the religious leaders put Jesus to the test. Their preconceived test of what the Messiah should be like. And when Jesus did not measure up, they rejected him. He did not meet their expectations, which we understand were incorrect. They thought he was going to come as a political messiah, that he would overthrow the Roman government and set up his own kingdom. And when Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they rejected him. Now here we have a bit of irony. The very one that they rejected, because he didn't measure up to their expectations, is the very one God chose, and God says He's perfect. So sinful man rejected the perfect Son of God as the chief cornerstone. The third thing that Peter tells us is those who reject Him seal their doom. Look in verse 8. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. He says those who chose to reject Jesus are sealing their doom to which they were appointed. In their arrogance, in their pride, they rejected as unworthy the very one God says was precious and highly honored in his sight. Do you see the irony there? And so the first thing Peter wants us to know is that Jesus is our foundation. He is our cornerstone, and he has been chosen by God. Now I want to tell you three things about a cornerstone, and we'll apply it to the Lord Jesus. Number one, the cornerstone gave stability to the building. Jesus gives our lives stability. There are many forces in this world that want to unset your life, to make you unsettled, to cause you to fall over and stumble. But I want you to know Jesus will give your life stability. If you will look to Him as your cornerstone, no matter what may be happening in your life, no matter what storms may be coming into your life, He will give you stability. Secondly, He determines our direction. Remember I told you every other stone must align itself with the cornerstone. The place of every other stone in that entire building is set by the cornerstone. Our lives... The direction of our lives must be aligned with Jesus Christ. 
We must determine the direction of our lives according to our Lord Jesus. We must adjust our lives according to Him and the Word of God. The Word of God. He's called the Word of God. Our cornerstone is the Word of God. This is the Word of God. We must align our lives with the Word of God. The living Word of God and the written Word of God must be the direction of our lives fall in line with Him. And then thirdly, He is the key to growth. The building grows from the cornerstone outward and upward. It starts with the cornerstone, and then next stones are placed outward, and then they're placed on top of those upward. Our vital union with Jesus is our key to spiritual growth. So Peter says, I want you to know, first of all, when we're talking about who you are, I want you to know your foundation. I want you to know your cornerstone. And that's Jesus Christ, chosen by God, precious in His sight. Though rejected by men, He is the one God has chosen. Next, having told us about our foundation, now Peter wants us to know who we are. We must know who we are. First thing he tells us is that we're living stones who've been built into a spiritual house. Look in verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. The picture is of Christians as a community, as a family, as a spiritual house. We are the brick or stones that make up the spiritual house, the church. The stress is on the truth that the church is a unit of many parts. Many bricks go to make up a church. Not just one brick. Not just two bricks. But thousands of bricks go together to make up a spiritual building. There is no room for Solitary Christianity. There is no such thing as the the electronic church or TV church. I'll be talking to people and they'll say, well, you know, I don't go to church, but I, I watch the church every Sunday morning on television. And if, if Peter's telling us anything, he's telling us, folks, that God intended for the church, the local church, to be a place where His people come together and are a vital part of a local congregation. You can't be a solitary Christian. Bricks don't lay out in a pile by themselves. They must be joined to the other bricks to become a spiritual house. And so it is very important that You be a part of a local church. Now, I know it's easy to get disenfranchised when you move or change locations, and it's hard to find a new local church. But I am convinced if you're going to grow as God would have you to grow in your Christian life, if you're going to serve Him as He would have you to serve Him, you need to be hooked in to a local congregation. 
And when you're not here as a part of this building, well, what happens when you start taking bricks away from a building? It weakens itself and eventually crumbles. It's important that you be here on the Lord's Day. You're part of the body of Christ. Your service in this church is important. Whether it be working in the nursery, whether it be a greeter, whether it be working as an usher, whether it be in a praise team, it's important. And when you're not here, the whole body suffers. So Peter says, the first thing I want you to know is that you are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Secondly, he says, we are a holy priesthood. Verse 5, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is speaking to every Christian. If you're a Christian, he's saying you are a priest. The priesthood of all believers. And the old covenant, the priest had a position of high privilege and honor. He would go in to meet with God on behalf of the people. The high priest wore a vest that had 12 stones on it. These represented the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning when he went into the holy place or to the holy of holies, he took the people of God with him as their representative. He represented the people before God. Peter's saying, hey, you are priests now. You don't have to go through anybody else. You can go straight into the presence of God because He has appointed you a priest. You represent yourself before the throne of God. You go into His, pres- His presence. That's the great privilege that we have. We have direct access to God through Jesus. You remember there was this thick veil that separated the holy place in the tabernacle or the temple from the holy of holies. And the only person that could go into that holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was was the high priest, and he could only go once a year, one time the whole year. And then he had to go through the blood of bulls and goats that had been sacrificed. Well, when Jesus died on the cross, that veil in the temple in Jerusalem supernaturally split from top to bottom. And it was as thick as a man's palm of a man's hand. That's how thick it was. Heavy material. But God supernaturally rent the veil from top to bottom, symbolizing now His people, Christians who've been bought through the death of Christ and washed in His blood, can enter into the presence of holy God. That's who we are. Priest of God. We can enter into His presence any time. Not just once a year, but any time, any day, day or night, you as a Christian can go into the presence of holy God. What a privilege. You can go and confess your sin before Him. You don't need to confess to me or some other person. You go straight to Him. Because you are a priest. Not only, though, is there a great privilege, but also there's a great duty. You remember what the Old Testament priests did? They offered sacrifices, didn't they? But Peter says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, you and I don't offer physical sacrifices. 
Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. We don't need that anymore. But we are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. As a spiritual priest, you're to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Are you doing that? You say, well, preacher, I don't quite know what spiritual sacrifices I am supposed to offer up. Well, I'm going to tell you. All right, number one. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, it tells us, Through Him then, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name. So one of the first sacrifices you and I are to offer up to God is praise. When you are genuinely involved in the praise that we do together here on Sundays, you are lifting up a spiritual sacrifice to God as His priest. When you praise God during the day, throughout the week, when you thank Him, you are lifting up a spiritual sacrifice to Him. You are serving as a priest unto Him. But not only praises, but He goes on to say, Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Not only praising God, but doing good works. Helping people. That's a sacrifice. Sharing. Helping people in need. Sharing with them some of what you have. That is a spiritual sacrifice. Okay, we see it also in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. He's talking about an offering that they'd send him. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent. It's in an offering to Paul through this man, Epaphroditus. And he describes it. A fragrant aroma. An acceptable sacrifice. Well-pleasing to God. When we give our gifts and our offerings to God, that is a spiritual sacrifice to him. You're acting as a priest when you do that. And then over in Romans 12, Paul says to give yourself is the greatest sacrifice. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. When you give yourself to God, when you surrender all that you are to all that He is and says, God, I want to live for you. I give my life to you. That's a spiritual sacrifice. That's a living sacrifice. Now, there are two things about these spiritual sacrifices you and I must remember. Number one, they must be done through Jesus. You see what Peter says? He says... For a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. Now, you and I cannot go into God's presence on our own merit of what we have done. We go through what Christ accomplished through His perfect life, through His death on the cross, through His resurrection and ascension into heaven. And so it means that we offer these sacrifices, whether it be the praise or the thanksgiving, or the sharing, or the good works. We do it in the power of Christ's Spirit. We trust Him for the power to do these sacrifices. And as we trust Him to work through us, to enable us to give these spiritual sacrifices, that brings us to the second thing, is these sacrifices are very 
acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, this word acceptable carries the idea of being quite pleasing. You know what I think it means? I think it means when you offer a spiritual sacrifice to God in the power of Jesus' Spirit, it brings a smile to the face of God. That's what it means. I like that idea of making God smile, don't you? Offering that praise, giving that gift, sharing, giving myself. It makes Him smile. It's quite pleasing, very acceptable to God. So Peter says, look, you are a royal priesthood. You're a holy priesthood. You have a privilege. You have a duty. And then he goes on to say, we are the new Israel. We're the new Israel. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Now look at those words. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for God's own possession. Do those remind you of anything? Well, they should remind you of what God said about Israel in the Old Testament. Peter takes the same words, same terms that were used in the Old Testament to refer to the nation of Israel, and he uses those words to refer to the church in the New Covenant. What do you think he's trying to say to us? I think he's saying to us that the church in the New Covenant is the new Israel. That now the church, Christians, are the new Israel. Now God's not through with Israel yet, but they rejected Christ and we have been grafted in, Gentiles, as the new Israel. And then he gives more definition to it. First of all, we are a chosen people. Israel was chosen by God in the Old Covenant to be His special people. From all the nations of the world, God chose this small group of people. And He said, I didn't choose you because you were more numerous. I didn't choose you because you were more prominent. He chose them because of His sovereign good love and pleasure. And He chose this group of people to be His chosen people. And the same way Peter is saying that we Christians are God's chosen people. That He has unconditionally, not because of anything we have done, or anything He saw that you would do, but just purely because of His sovereign goodwill and pleasure, He chose us to be His people. Chosen of God. Jesus told His disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And it's because God chooses us first that we choose Him next. So He says, first you're a chosen people. That's who you are. Not only are you a priest, but you're the new Israel. God's chosen you. Next, you're a royal priesthood. Here Peter adds to the idea of priesthood and makes it royal priesthood. We are priests not after the order of Aaron of the Old Covenant, but we are priests after the order of Jesus, King Jesus. 
Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was a king, a royal priesthood. You and I are royalty. Do you get that? We are brothers of the king, sisters of the king. You're a royal priesthood. You are king priest is what he's saying. We will reign and rule with Christ as his regents for a thousand years when he returns. You're royalty. Next, he says, you're a holy nation. Just as God called Israel to be a nation separated unto him, to be different from other nations, to be a light to a darkened world, he has called us Christians to be separate, to be different from the world. We're to walk according to God's ways and God's word, not according to the world's ways. We're a holy nation. We're separate people. And fourth, he says, a people for God's own possession. Something of no value in itself when owned by someone of great fame, it becomes valuable. How much would you say a lock of hair is worth? If you could find a lock of mine, it might be worth something, but not much, right? Did you know a lock of John Lennon's hair sold for $46,000 in 1998? Because something that may not be of much value in itself when it's owned by somebody famous. How much would you say a baseball is worth? It's a regular baseball. Two, maybe three dollars. Did you know that two or three dollar baseball that McGuire hit his 70th home run sold for 3.3 million Dollars. Two dollar baseball. Why? Because of what it's the significance of the one who hit the home run. You and I, who owns us? The God of the universe. The God who made everything. You're his possession. That makes you worth more than we can speak. Immeasurable worth. Immeasurable value. Because you are His. You belong to Him. You're a child of God. So let's review. What's Peter saying? He says, first, know our cornerstone, Jesus. Next, know who we are. We're living stones in the spiritual house of God. We are a holy priesthood. We are the new Israel. We're a royal priest. Know who you are. And then, he says, know your purpose. Verses 9 and 10. But you are a royal race, a royal priesthood a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. For what purpose? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who's called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our purpose is to proclaim His excellencies. 
And he's just talked about what those excellencies are. That he's made us a chosen people. That he's made us a royal priesthood. That he has made us his own people. Proclaim those things to people. Tell of the great things that he's done for us. You're to be so filled with love for Jesus that you can't help but tell people about it. We're to be so awestruck by who we are in Christ that we can't help but tell people about it. Now, I just can't help but believe if you suddenly found out in some way that you were royalty, that you were in some way connected to Queen Elizabeth of England in such a fashion that you actually were going to be the next king or queen of England, you'd let people know about it, wouldn't you? I mean, we all brag about being, you know, we tell folks that we're descended from Queen Mary Scots, Queen Mary Stuart. How many people say, yeah, yeah, you know, back in my history that has a king or queen or whatever else, we all want to claim something like that, don't we? Now, you are a child of the king. You are royalty. Proclaim it. Let people hear it because they too can become a child of the king. Let them hear it. Now, we are to proclaim His excellencies, and the reason we proclaim is because of what He's done for us. In verse 10, He says, first, He's called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. You know, we were walking around in darkness, blind. And then God came and He revealed to us the light of the truth about His love for us in Jesus. And how Jesus died for our sins and that we can have our sins wiped away, forgiven because of what Jesus did. And He shone that light into our hearts and we embrace through faith the Lord Jesus Christ. And we were transported out of darkness into His marvelous light. We now have a meaning and purpose in life. We're not just aimlessly wandering through life, but we know the way to God through Jesus. We're children of the light, and we are to proclaim the light and the truth that we have. He says, now we are the people of God. Verse 10, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once we were not, once we had no real identity in this world. We were just existing for ourselves, but now God has made us His people. He's given us meaning and purpose. And then he goes on to say, you were called out of no mercy into mercy. And Peter is alluding back to the book of Hosea, where God shows His covenant love for Judah, even though they were in apostasy and worshiping foreign idols, he said nevertheless he was going to love them and his love was greater than any sin they could commit. And what Peter is alluding to is, hey, we were all like that. We were walking in our own ways, doing our own thing, turning away from God. But God in his love made us who were not a people to be his people. Who had no mercy, he put his mercy upon us. And brought us to Himself that we might walk with Him. That we might know true life and purpose. 
So who are we? Peter tells us. He says, first, Jesus is your foundation. He says, next, he says, you are a priest unto God. You are a royal priesthood. You are the new Israel. You are a holy nation. You have been chosen by God. That's who you are. Your royalty. How do you live? That's who you are. But how are you living? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would just live up to the level of who we are in the Lord Jesus. That we would know who we are and we would live in the fullness of that. That you might be honored and you might be glorified in our lives as we proclaim your excellencies. In Jesus' name, amen.